says in verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, Remember my chains, grace be with you. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for <clears throat> the word of God and for a chance to worship you through song and prayer and the giving of our gifts and as well, Lord, to use the word of God as an act of worship towards you, to let the voice of the very spirit of you as the living God communicate things to our hearts and souls and minds that we need to hear. So, Lord, as we open your word, we ask, open our minds to comprehend these scriptures, open our heart to be receptive, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd speak in a personal way to each one of us as only you can do. And we ask this, believing such in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's important to remember that church life, as we would think about it, is not just about conducting activities or operating programs or different ministries, but really is foremost about people and about interactions with relationships that we have with people and realizing that Jesus is always at work among us and that Jesus works through people, that he chooses to work through us as his instruments as the body of Christ. And I think this passage this morning, as we look at these final greetings of Paul, as he's closing out this letter to the church of Colossae, communicate that reality quite clearly. If you'll draw your attention with me back to verse 7, let's work through these greetings together and final instructions Paul gives. He says in verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord will tell you, he says, all the news about me. And he says, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts together with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who's one of you. And they will make known to you, he says, all things which are happening to me. So the first two men we find Paul introduce in sort of the closing comments here 
are basically men that he's introducing to the church of Colossae for the purpose of wanting them to be aware that these were the two ambassadors we can see that Paul sent out on his behalf to deliver the letter of Colossians, this letter that we're looking at together, we've been studying, because you notice verse 8, Paul specifically references there that he was sending them to you. He says, I'm sending them to you, that is sending these men to you there at the church of Colossae, and they were no doubt the two men who brought this very letter, this epistle that Paul wrote to the church of the Colossians. And they were Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, a few things we know about these men from collective things that are given to us in the New Testament. First of all, Tychicus, we know from the book of Ephesians, from 2 Timothy, he's mentioned in Titus. He was someone who Paul, it seems, greatly trusted, someone who had become a very reliable servant and companion with the Apostle Paul in ministry. And he seemed to be a regular ambassador that Paul liked to send out to perform errands for him on different occasions. When you read different references to him, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of the letters of many of the New Testament epistles, it seems that Paul would often send out Tychicus to perform practical errands for him, whether it was like we find here, delivering different letters that Paul wrote to the churches, whether it was giving updates in regards to what was going on with the Apostle Paul's ministry and his, his church planning work, whether it was checking in on various churches and then bringing back report to Paul, and at times as well, going to some of those churches and temporarily while he was there, providing some assistance and counsel and comfort to help minister on Paul. Paul's behalf. So Tychicus just seemed to be a, a rather, rather reliable guy, someone who Paul came to depend upon, and he seems to have understood Paul's heart and vision. And so because of that, he often could be sent out as an extension of Paul. Basically, when Paul couldn't get to an area, one man can only do so much, that Paul seemed to like to send out Tychicus as an extension of himself, as an extension of his ministry to go to different areas and to kind of minister uh, in areas where Paul could not get to. Onesimus, the man mentioned in verse 9 here, was someone who actually had quite, you could say, a shady past. Onesimus, we know originally, was a very sinful and selfish man. We know from the book of Philemon that he was a runaway slave who also was a thief, so he didn't have the best of reputation. And while he was on the run as a runaway slave, by God's sovereignty, circumstantially, he ends up bumping into and meeting the apostle Paul Here's the gospel from Paul, and the Lord ends up saving Onesimus. And as a result of encountering Jesus, this man's life was totally turned around. And he went from being someone who had a very shady past, who was a self-serving man, to someone who became a solid servant for the Lord, who went completely the opposite direction. I mean, this guy, Onesimus, to me, is the poster child for someone who was once living a very wasted and unprofitable life, and now, once meeting the Lord, the Lord turned him around and transformed this man who was once living a wasted, unprofitable life and made him into a very profitable man of God. Someone who was then used as an instrument for the Lord to serve in ministry and to do great things for God a man who at one time you could say was sort of a burden 
on his community and now he actually is becoming a blessing for the community and in the community serving people and and doing good works for the Lord he's living proof that the Lord saves people listen not just to spare them from hell certainly yes that's true but he also saves people to transform their lives and make them become vessels for his good purposes Uh, And Paul speaks about in writing to the Philippians, he says, I have not yet apprehended that which I was apprehended for. In other words, Paul understood something. He understood. Remember, Paul was one of the greatest enemies of the church. I mean, this guy with zeal and passion and dedication was getting Christians arrested and put to death and doing everything he could to stop this thing called the way, this, this thing of Christianity that was bursting forth with such great you know, momentum in the days of the early church. And Paul was the greatest enemy of the church. And what, is Je- what does Jesus do? He's such a great sense of humor. He says, this is fantastic. If I could have the biggest Super Bowl trophy of grace, it'd be Paul the Apostle. Because he saves Paul and then turns Paul from who he was, Saul of Tarsus, this hater and persecutor of the church, and he makes him the greatest church planner and pastoral figure and witness and New Testament writer. And he just takes him and he doesn't just save him from hell. He saves him and he makes him a useful, powerful instrument for the Lord and transforms him in a mighty way. And Onesimus is sort of one of those individuals, as I said, once a very shady, sinful past and the Lord now using him as a servant of the Lord in Paul's life and together with Paul's ministry team. Verses 7 and 9 as we read them here, you notice Paul uses some similar terms to describe these two men who brought the letter to Colossae. First of all, he calls them both in verse 7 and 9, he refers to them both as beloved brothers. In other words, these were two men, no doubt, who had become spiritual family to Paul and Paul loved these guys. He says, these are my beloved brothers. They were just men who Paul had formed a bond with. He shared a deep bond of love. The idea of brothers is they were just men who they had each other's backs. They functioned like brothers And there was just this deep bond of love and connection between them. And, you know, I look at this and I think, what a beautiful thing. Is it not so true that sometimes in the family of God, in the body of Christ, sometimes we have deeper and more meaningful bonds and relationships and camaraderie with people who are our brothers in the Lord or our sisters in the Lord than we even do with relationships that we have anywhere else in the world or in our life. And there's just this beautiful camaraderie, this bond of having each other's backs, bearing one another's burdens. And and Paul refers to these guys in this way. He says, they're my beloved brothers. Love these guys, he says. They're my brothers. They stand with me. They help me. He also identifies them. Secondly, we see in verses 7 and 9 by referring to them both, identifying these men as faithful. He gives them that adjective. He says, they're not only my beloved brothers. He says, these men are both faithful faithful that is they were loyal you could say they were reliable dependable men they had proved themselves to be trustworthy to paul and paul appreciated this they were dedicated and committed to things the idea is they they were guys who kept their word they followed through they showed up and, and and did the things that they had committed to they they finished and completed things whenever they did them. they were the kind of men that you could count on they were dependable 
They were consistent and faithful. And I'll tell you, faithfulness is an important quality in the things of the Lord, and especially when it comes to the Lord's work. Such an important virtue. You know, I found over many, many years, not just of Christianity, but of ministry, many people will talk about what should be done. Lots of people will even talk about what they have done. Oh, when I was at this other church, I did this and that and this. Many will talk about what they have done. And lots of people will also talk about what they will do. Oh, I want to do this and I want to get involved in that and I'll be there for that. And and, and a lot of that will go on in just the verbiage of the way that people talk. But I find how few there are who actually show up and faithfully get things done. There's a big difference there. You know, it's often been said before, I think it's a great quote, man's greatest ability is dependability. Man's greatest ability is dependability. Because here's the deal, listen, all the power, all the enablement, that's supernatural. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Lord speaks through donkeys. No amens. The the Lord, the Lord... He provides the supernatural giftings and the anointing and the power. And and what the Lord wants from us is not ability, it's availability and it's dependability. Here am I, Lord, send me. And that we actually, you know, make ourselves available and we actually are faithful, reliable, dependable. We're, We're the type of people who we follow through, we keep our word, we show up. We finish tasks and we, we, we make sure to be someone who's consistent and reliable. 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 1 and 2 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We're all stewards of the Lord's work. We're just stewards of it. It's an amazing privilege to serve Jesus, but yet it says it's required. When you're a steward of anyone, it's required to be faithful. And certainly when we're a steward of the Lord, we want to be very faithful above everything else. That's the only thing really I see humanly we bring to the table. We bring faithfulness. The Lord brings all the power and the fruitfulness. Only he can do that. He also thirdly refers to them as not only those who are his brothers and faithful, but he calls both of these men as well servants. They were just servants, Paul says. They're fellow servants. And and I like that. The idea is they were willing to do whatever needed to be done. Big or small, seen or unseen. And that's indicated by look what they're doing. I mean, they're not preaching the gospel. They're not operating a crusade or planning a church. They're mailmen. They're delivering a letter for Paul. They're journeying across hill and valley in unpleasant conditions and and taking a letter and faithfully, like a servant, just making sure that letter got from point A to point B. But listen, thank goodness they were faithful servants because that was scripture. I've appreciated the book of Colossians, have you? It's helped me a great deal in my Christian life. Thankfully, somebody was a faithful mailman. Thankfully, somebody was a servant. Because it was those servants who conveyed this letter and protected and preserved this letter, which has become scripture. Again, they weren't selective in the work and tasks that they performed. They humbly did what was ever needed. They were just men who had hearts that were inclined toward practical service, helping people, doing what it took to get the job done in the Lord's work. You know, Jesus' ministry, when we look at it in the scriptures, in the gospels, it was marked by humble servanthood. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. 
Jesus was the greatest example of humble servanthood. John 13, he saw something that needed to be done. It was washing filthy feet, and he just started washing filthy feet. And he just saw what needed to be done and self-initiated. He just began to practically serve in whatever it took to get the job done. May we seek to reflect Jesus as his representatives and his servants. That we would be faithful, but that we would always be servant-hearted. Just servants. What a beautiful quality that we would be people who are willing to do whatever needs to be done. Big or small. You know, that we're not waiting to have an opportunity on a stage or a platform, but just whatever needs to be done. Whatever practical work, whatever way, you know, whether it's serving in the church or involved in some outreach function, whatever it may be, just whatever needs to be done. Just seeing it and helping and, and being someone who can do practical tasks, seen or unseen, big or small. Listen, gang, that's all the work of the Lord. It's It's work. That's what ministry is. It's so much like in many ways, like you, know, you need different functions in a business. Well, in a body of Christ, in the church, you need those who are just willing to function and work and, and collectively bring together their willingness to serve. And because Paul saw these two men for who they were, he chose to send them to visit this church. And notice that when they were there, two things they basically would do. First of all, they would inquire how the believers there were doing. It says that Paul says, I'm sending them, verse 8, to you for this purpose, to know your circumstances, and he says, comfort your heart. So he sent them, and he says, look, when you're there, inquire. Let them know that we care. Find out how they're doing. What are their circumstances? And Paul says, and make sure, comfort them. Offer some counsel and some encouragement. So they were to inquire how they were doing. And secondly, he says, they will also give you an update on how we're doing. He mentions in verse 7, they'll tell you the news about me and then at the end of verse 9, he says, they will also make known to you all things which are happening here. So Paul says, they're coming to inquire how you're doing and offer some comfort and counsel. And he says, they'll also give you an update and a report how we're doing here, the challenges Paul and his team were facing. And I think that was no doubt so the church could practically just be praying for Paul and his ministry. Verse 10, Paul goes on here to say, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers, Paul says, for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. For they have proved a comfort to me. So Paul, in extending some more greetings here, draws attention now here in verses 10 and 11 to a few individuals. And particularly, notice he takes note here to, to notate that there were only a few Jewish believers, that's what he's referring to here, that were actually assisting him at this time in his work for the kingdom of God. He introduces three more men here in verses 10 and 11. He says, these are my only fellow workers. Notice what he says, verse 11, my only fellow workers who are of the circumcision. The idea is who are of the covenant of the circumcision. That was a reference clearly understood to those who were Jewish. That is Jewish men who had put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and as the Christ. They were what we might call completed Jews, Messianic Jews, those who were Jewish by nationality, not Gentile. Anyone not Jewish is all Gentiles, the rest. These were men who were of God's chosen people, Jews, but they were Jews who had been born again. 
Jews who had come to know Jesus as the Savior that God had sent to his people. And Paul mentions a few things about them. He tells us who these three particular Jewish converts were that were helping him in the work there. He says one of them was Aristarchus. He calls him a fellow prisoner in verse 10. And we know from the book of Acts and Philemon, that letter, that Aristarchus was a traveling companion with Paul. Paul refers to him as someone who was a fellow worker in his missionary and church planning endeavors. And it seems Aristarchus was just a loyal companion. He traveled with Paul. Paul seems to have ministered with the team when he did his missions work. And due to his close connection to Paul, it seems he proved to be a pretty loyal guy because this guy, Paul says, he's actually my fellow prisoner right now. Uh, so he wasn't a fair weather friend. And he wasn't a fair weather ministry person. When it came down to getting arrested for the gospel, he was sitting in the cell right next to Paul. Paul says, this guy was so willing to stand with me, he actually got arrested with me. And he's a fellow prisoner right now with me for preaching the gospel at, at this time. Mark, he mentions another individual in verse 10, the cousin of Barnabas. And we know from the book of Acts a little bit about him. Barnabas, remember, was a leader in the church of Antioch. And he also was Paul's first missionary partner when Paul first went out on his missionary journeys. And he had a younger relative who's referenced here, Mark. He's called John Mark in the book of Acts. And Mark was someone who that Paul and Barnabas brought on board with them when they went out as a team to begin to do some of their missionary work and church planning. Mark, as a younger man, was brought along to serve, it says, as an assistant and probably someone who they were mentoring and training for the works of ministry. And Paul, when you look at his life, seemed to have this pattern of wanting to invest in and also wanting to entrust opportunities to younger men in the service of the Lord. He seemed to have a real heart for this. He valued the younger generation, seeing them become engaged in his work of the Lord and preparing them. He says in verse 10 there about Mark, he says, I've given you instructions about him. So if he comes to you, welcome him. And maybe perhaps Paul's in essence saying there, look, this young man is important to me. Don't dismiss him just because he's young. Don't brush him off as unessential or unimportant. And I look at this and I think, man, what a beautiful picture. How wonderful when those who are older in the body of Christ and in the church advocate among God's people for the value and the importance of the younger generation and realize the importance of them and, and not just overlooking them, but looking to invest in them and engage you know, with them and to allow them to have opportunities to be involved, to serve and to participate as Paul did with, with Mark here. He mentions one other man here that was Jewish serving with them who was a believer, a man named, it says, Justice. His name was Jesus and no, probably no doubt humbly he wanted to change that name. Uh, Jesus was actually a common name, Yeshua or Yahshua among the, the people of Israel. So he, he, he said, I, I can't keep that name. Call me Justice. Call me Justice and said, now we don't know a whole lot, honestly, really much at all about this man, but apparently he had value to Paul because Paul took the time to make mention of him. What we do read in verses uh, 11 there, of all three of these men, Paul says regarding the three of them, two particular things that are of note, that number one, they were workers for the kingdom of God. 
And number two, he says, they had proved to be a comfort to me. Now, that's a pretty good compliment that Paul's uh, paying to these three men here. He's all three of these men. They are workers for the kingdom of God. That is, they invested time and effort to labor in the work of the Lord. They were willing to roll up their sleeves, sweat and be involved and put in time and dedication for the purposes of the kingdom of God. They were willing to to engage in the work. Servants willing to work and do what was necessary for God's purposes and do ministry. And Paul also says, and these three men, he says, they've proved, verse 11, to be a comfort to me. Again, what what a beautiful compliment. Paul says, their presence to stand by me and serve with me, he says, and the things that they've done to help me and and to assist and to to, to be involved in different ways and to take response. He says, it's brought a comfort to me as a man of God. They've proved to be a real comfort to me. They kept Paul, no doubt, from feeling lonely and really as if he were overloaded in the work. And because they were willing to engage and get involved as workers for the kingdom, they helped bear some of the load of the work of the Lord and that encouraged Paul. And it lightened his load. Because he wasn't serving alone. There was something very beautiful about being able to have the partnership. He said, man, these guys, they're workers for the kingdom. And boy, they just bring such comfort to me. And keep me to be, you know, from becoming discouraged so often. And I'll tell you, I look at those terms and I think, what a great thing for all of us to aspire to be known for. That you and I could become known as those who are workers for the kingdom of God. But we, we, we are, many of us, great workers. And we will work at a lot of things. We'll work to succeed in our place of employment. We'll work to climb the ladder and get the next position or get to a certain status of business or financially. We'll you know, work at accruing a better education. And we will put work into a lot of things. You know, we'll work in all these different arenas. May God help us to be workers for the kingdom of God. Because I'll tell you something, First uh, Corinthians 15 says that our labor in the Lord is what will never be in vain. So Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Listen, who does not know? You can put a lot of labor into your vocation and all kinds. I'm not saying that you should not do that. But you can put in a lot of labor trying to launch a business or take some pursuit or do, and, and it could end up just all falling through the cracks. And it ends up being a you know, I put so much work into that. I put so much time into that. And, and it's just either not appreciated or it just, you know, it all falls apart or whatever. The Bible says the one thing that you can put your life into that will never be in vain is anything you do for the Lord. That as you labor for the Lord, that's the one thing that will never be in vain because it will be rewarded from a divine perspective in a way that you'll never have regret. I tell you, never ever will you have regret for any work you have done for the kingdom of God. You'll never regret that. Never ever. So Paul says, man, what a comfort to have people like this. May we be workers for the kingdom and God help us to be those who prove to be a comfort to others. Man, what a great thing to aspire towards. Paul then mentions Epaphras in verse 12 and here he says, Epaphras is one of you. He was from Colossae. A bondservant of Christ greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, he says, that he's great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and in Hariopolis. Now, 
Epaphras, according to church history, what we believe, as well as some scriptural evidence, chapter 1 of this book and what we're reading here, other things, we believe that Epaphras was actually the pastor of Colossae, of the church of Colossae. We know Colossae, that church, Paul did not plant that church. Uh, it's believed that Epaphras was actually their pastor and that he had traveled to visit Paul where he was now in prison and he went to bring word to Paul in regards to some of the challenges the church was facing. Remember the threat to the Gnostic heresy that was sort of trying to infringe upon the church and so this is how Paul got this report to be able to write this letter. So it seems that Epaphras, we believe, is their pastor and notice Paul commends the pastor of this church as being a man who was a devoted servant and he also commends him in verse 13 for being someone who had a great love for people that he ministered to. He says, I bear him witness. He says, your pastor has a great zeal for you, a great concern, a, a, an interest in you, the idea is, and for those who are in Laodicea and the surrounding areas. So Paul says, let me tell you something. He says, your, your pastor, he's a very devoted servant. And man, I'll tell you, he loves you tremendously. He has a great zeal and interest in you. And Paul says, not only that, but I've come to see he has an interest not just in you, but even in the surrounding area. He mentions Laodicea and Hariopolis, that is other territories. These were communities and regions around Colossae. And he says he has a, a vision that's beyond just the, the church itself to want to minister to some of these other areas. And he points out in verse 12, lest we should overlook it because it's beautiful in verse 12, one of the very functional and most important marks of ministry that this pastor had for that church. Look at it there in verse 12. He says, he is someone who's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. This was one of the marks that Paul took note of of this pastoral figure for the church of Colossae. Paul notices the description of his prayer life is referenced here. He says, this guy is committed to praying for you. Notice he says, he's praying for you always. Paul must have just took note of that. Man, this guy's always praying for you as his congregation. He's always praying for you and he saw prayer as a spiritual work to engage in. I mean, what a beautiful description of a committed prayer life. He says he's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. He was willing to not just pray when convenient, but he actually saw prayer and he was okay with it as a work. Look at the terminology, laboring fervently in prayers, willing to put in the work of intercession to stand in the gap and to ask God to work in the lives of people, no doubt in ways he understood, as any pastor would, in ways that sometimes you just can't. I mean, you can present the truth to people, you can love people, you can serve people, but at the end of the day, you can't change people. You can't change their hearts. You can't make them you know, obey the word of God. You can't force people to be responsive to the Lord. Only the Lord can bring something supernatural that happens on the vertical between them and God. And, and the way to bring that about, the only work that anyone in the ministry can do is to labor fervently in prayer and to ask the Lord to work in people's lives that we love or maybe that we lead or we serve. And I look at this and I think, what a great challenge for myself, for, for all of us this morning. How willing are we to labor in prayer? 
You know, many of us will pray when it's convenient or we'll pray when it gets really desperate. But how many of us are willing to labor in prayer, to see it as a true work and labor for the Lord? I think it's probably the most valuable work and labor we can do for the Lord. It's certainly the purest heart to be willing to just pray and ask God to intervene in people's situation and lives. And we see what he prayed for as well in verse 12. It says he was praying that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So the main thing he prayed for was their spiritual health. That was the primary focus of his prayer. God, keep them spiritually healthy and strong. He was asking God to notice, uphold them spiritually that they may stand that is, that they wouldn't falter in their walk with the Lord. He was praying, God, help them to stand. Help them to stand against temptation. Help them to stand against false doctrine. Lord, help them to stand and to walk spiritually and not be tripped up. And to not cause themselves to you know, be sabotaged by their own weakness of their flesh. You just, I live up, Lord, help them stand. Help them stand, Lord. There's so many things that are going to blow against them and, and want to cause them to falter. Lord, help them to stand. And he says as well that they would remain in the will of God for their lives. That they'd be perfect, completed in the things that are God's will for their life. Again, what a great example. If you have a heart this morning to want to pray for people that you love or pray for people maybe that you lead and serve in some way, what a great illustration there of how to labor in prayer for people in our lives. What a great way to pray for your spouse. Lord, I pray, help them to stand. Lord, as, as they work in their job and they're around all kinds of ungodly people who don't know and love you and the temptations and the pressures, Lord, help them to stand. Help them to stand for you and to have the courage to be a witness and not be persuaded. Protect them from the enemy, Lord. And Lord, I pray that your, your will would be done in their life. What a great way to pray for our children. Lord, help them to stand and that your will would be done in their lives. Help them to stand for you and, and be faithful and committed to pray for each other, to pray for those we minister to. Beautiful, beautiful examples there of how we ought to pray. Verse 14, he then also mentions Luke the beloved physician, and Demas, he says, greet you. Now, Luke, notice, the only place we're told in the Bible that he was actually a physician, Luke seems to be this loving doctor or physician who in that day deeply cared about Paul and traveled around with Paul in ministry to assist him. We see him with Paul all throughout the book of Acts. He served to kind of oversee the health, no doubt, of Paul and the ministry team that often as they went on missionary journeys, Luke was with them as a doctor, helping, no doubt, to keep their health and recover or healing when it was needed. This guy as a physician probably likely gave up higher pay to travel around as a missionary doctor and to use his skills to serve medically those who are doing the work of the Lord. And I think this shows Paul's practical wisdom in ministry as well, that Paul believed in utilizing doctors and medical help for people's health conditions. And, and I say this in balance because keep in mind, Paul's ministry, you read the book of Acts, was it not, ladies and gentlemen, clearly marked by the miraculous healings of God at times. There were times where through Paul's ministry, there were miraculous healings in people's bodies that were taking place. But yet we see here, Paul also traveled with a doctor, which shows that Paul could not just heal anyone and everyone on command. 
Paul didn't have the ability to just walk around as a healer and just heal whoever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to, at any given moment. There were times when Paul prayed for people's healings and God would grant 1 Corinthians 12 gifts, plural, of healings, plural, not a gift of a healer, gifts of healings that God would say, you know what, I'm going to give a gift to the body of Christ today. I'm going to bring a healing and God will do that on occasion and we should be open to that, that there is a gift of the miraculous and healings that can come forth at times that God can orchestrate through his servants, but that was left to God's sovereignty. In fact, I would remind you, Paul, who was someone who was used greatly of the Lord to bring physical healing into people's lives, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had his own thorn in the flesh, a, a painful physical ailment, and Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, and he didn't. He just said, Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you, and my power will be perfected in your weakness. Paul, I, I'm not going to remove that health condition, but I will supply you sufficient grace to be able to live with it and it'll be enough and my power will be manifested through the weakness that's happening in your physical body that as you are weakened you will actually be more powerful and useful for me to work through your life Paul when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 he says we left Trophimus in Miletus sick in other words I think what Paul's saying is look Trophimus was serving with us he got sick we prayed for him we asked God to heal him. God didn't heal him. He wasn't getting better and he couldn't travel on so we had to leave him sick. Now, wait a minute. Paul, you, you're a healer. You have gifts of healing. Why wouldn't you heal one of your own ministry team members? Paul, if you have the gift to heal anybody, why would you not heal a, a ministry partner? Why wouldn't you heal yourself? Because Paul couldn't just at whim heal whoever and whenever he wanted to. It was something God sovereignly orchestrated at different times in his life. As well, 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach infirmities. Again, for medicinal purposes. He tells him to utilize that as a way of helping. Which reminds us, God can bring health and healing through miracles or through medicine. Both are used and balanced through God's purposes and God's sovereign work at times. And Luke is a great reminder to all of us as a doctor and physician that God can use our practical vocational skills for the purposes of the Lord. Whatever your vocation is, whatever your skill is, well, I'm just this, well, I'm just that. Listen, God can use your vocational skill for ministry, for his purposes, be open. Look for God to show you ways that he can do that. What a great value this physician was to Paul and his team. And because he was exposed to the ministry firsthand and he was a very intelligent man, Luke is a physician, and he was a great researcher and organizer, Luke ends up writing a gospel, the gospel of Luke, and he's the one who writes for us and records under the Holy Spirit's direction the book of Acts. Again, this physician who yet was open to letting God work through his life. Paul also mentions in verse 14 a man named Demas. And Demas was someone who at one time was a faithful follower of Jesus and a servant of the Lord, yet later he got off track spiritually. And he ended up abandoning Paul and deserting his calling to serve the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.10 says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. So here he's faithful in serving, but later on, he ends up forsaking Paul out of his love for the things of the world and departing, which is a reminder, the pleasures of the world system 
and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches ensnared this man's heart and drew him away and he lost focus and he chose worldly things and material pleasures and pursuits over continuing to serve the Lord. And Demas is a reminder to all of us, listen, that starting out well or serving the Lord for any amount of time is no guarantee that somebody's going to stay true to the Lord and to God's work over the long haul. And we need to remember this for ourselves. We need to stay on guard. Just because we started well, we've been serving the Lord a long time, doesn't mean that we don't have the potential and capacity to abandon ship if we don't keep our hearts in a right place. And if we don't watch and monitor and guard that we don't become too entrenched or start chasing some worldly pursuit, and all of a sudden, boy, I, tell you, I have seen, ladies and gentlemen, people uh, over the years who they went loving the Lord, serving the Lord, they were always around the church and involved in the Lord's work and so forth, and then all of a sudden, it's amazing. Just the things of the world and the pleasures of the world and all of a sudden, little by little, they gravitate, they gravitate. And now, I mean, they're you know, all out in the world, but they've kind of just, they drift and they abandon the things of the Lord, the work of the Lord, church, ministry. It all just becomes diminished and less important and it's just sad. It can happen to us. We have to be careful at this thing place. And as well, as Paul says, he's someone ultimately who forsook him loving the present world I just want to be very real. Please hear me. There will be times in your life, there will be people in your life, maybe they were once loyal, faithful, close to your heart, comrades, companions, even in the people of God who I tell you in advance, there are going to be times people are going to forsake you. And you're going to be abandoned. It's a part of this life. It's a part of what takes place. I'm not saying it's pleasant and it's a hard thing when it happens, but it happens. People forsake. They abandon. They walk away. They walk away from the Lord for the pleasures of this world and they walk away from relationships and partnerships. And Paul mentions someone who ultimately here was well, but then detoured later on. Verse 15, he says, And greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus... And the church that is in his house. So he sends greeting to another church in the local area of Laodicea. Apparently there was another congregation. Maybe they weren't yet as established as Colossae. It says that they were actually meeting as a church in the house of this man named Nymphus. Notice the church that meets in his house. There's a doctrinal truth. The church isn't the building. The church met in his house. That the church is the people of the Lord. It's important that we remember this. I mean, just yesterday we were out of the, the park with the outreach and, and there we were on an empty lot you know, with you know, garbage and things all over in the middle of Atlantic City and there's a group of us around. We're worshiping and singing the Lord and, and the word of God's being shared and there's fellow and thinking, this is the church. This is church. Just the same as when we assemble in a, a nice comfortable building. The church is the people of the Lord assembled together and here uh, this man Nymphus had opened up his home and, and in the early church it was common that churches met in homes because of persecution and the threat of it because of lack of funds and just cultural dynamics it was very common those who had larger homes would offer their houses for people to assemble and to gather in and in many cultures today this is still a very common thing verse 16 he says now when this epistle is read among you 
See that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now again, the word epistle, remember, is a New Testament reference to a letter, to a New Testament letter. That's what that refers to. And we notice here that this letter, according to verse 16 of Colossians, was intended to be read and learned from publicly with the entire congregation. Notice, Paul assumed that when the letter was received, that he sent the churches, that it would be read for their gatherings when they met. He says, when, not if, when, he says, this letter is read among you. Paul wanted the letter to be heard by the whole congregation so that they could learn from it and they could glean the spiritual truths and the instruction and application. Often they'd read the letter and then teachers in the church would then explain and give application to expound on the truths. And I like this because we see from the earliest days of the church, this pattern established of reading through the entirety of the letters, the New Testament letters that were sent. Paul says, when you read this letter, in other words, they didn't just read a portion of the scripture, they, they read the whole letter. They, they, they studied the entirety of the thing. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to see this pattern from the earliest days of the church, the need and the value of surveying all that's written. Not just, Paul didn't say, well, if you, just read what sections you like. You could check out chapter one or maybe take a verse from chapter two. He said, when you read the whole thing, the whole thing has a purpose. It all has value and benefit. Of course, we know it's all inspired by the Spirit. How much more? And to learn in context all of the subjects and the truths. And this was a cyclical letter. It was to be passed among the different congregations to benefit from it. Paul then says, verse 17 in closing, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation of my own hand, which means Paul signing it, Remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. So as Paul closes off his letter, he reminds them again, verse 18, that he is currently imprisoned for his faithfulness, his great faithfulness to the Lord and to the work of the Lord. And he publicly exhorts now, notice this brother who needed to embrace his calling from the Lord. And it's interesting, Paul sets it in contrast to his faithfulness to be imprisoned for the Lord. You notice in verse 17, he gives a specific exhortation that they were to give. He says, tell Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Apparently, there was some assignment that this guy Archippus received from the Lord, something he was to do. And is it possible maybe he was neglecting his ministry from the Lord? Maybe he was being lazy or irresponsible. Maybe he was preoccupied with the things of the world or maybe he was even being rebellious for some reason. We can't be sure if he was negligent or if this was just important to Paul. One thing's evident, Paul made this guy accountable in front of the whole congregation <laughs> when they read this letter. Here comes this last exhortation and now everybody in the church is going to hold that poor guy accountable. So this was obviously something very important. He says, you have received a ministry from the Lord Jesus appointed you to do this, he says, to accomplish a work for him. And he says, your marching orders came from heaven. You've received something that the Lord has assigned you to do. So he says, take heed, be careful. Make sure you give proper attention to complete and fulfill what the Lord has given to you to do. He's saying, Archippus, don't be negligent. Don't be lazy. Don't get distracted and preoccupied by other things and neglect what the Lord has called you to do. Don't shrink back and let another do it. 
you were assigned to do this. This is your assignment from the Lord. One translation says, be sure to carry out the work the Lord gave you. You know, sometimes in our lives, we know, don't we? We know what the Lord's told us to do. Or we know maybe what the Lord has assigned or asked of us. But sometimes for different reasons, we struggle with execution. And we struggle with completing, carrying things out. And perhaps this is a necessary exhortation for one of you today. Maybe the Lord is saying to you, listen, you need to take heed to complete and do what the Lord has asked you to do. To finish to carry it out and, and to, to execute. You know, as God's people, let us seek to be finishers. Our Lord poured out His life and said, it is finished. I finished what you gave me to do, Father. That we would seek to be completers, to obediently and faithfully follow through and complete whatever the Lord assigns us to do in serving Him whether it's ministering in our family, whether it's fulfilling some role. And we just know, Lord, I know what you've told me to do. But are you doing it? Are you fulfilling it? Carry it out. Be obedient. I love Paul. He says, none of these things move me, that I may finish my race and complete the task of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that heart that Paul had. Listen, things are going to come. Obstacles, hindrance, this, that, or whatever. But God, help us to have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of perseverance, to pour love and say, but nothing, nothing will move me. Nothing. Perhaps some of you this morning, something has moved you. Listen, move it out of the way and get back to what the Lord told you to do. Amen?